a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Been quite a week, hasn't it? All right, let's get right to it. Let's talk about some of the stuff going on. Let me first start with a quick shout out to my sponsors. Why do I do this? Well, because they make this program possible. How do they do it? Well, very simply, they keep the wolves away from my door, allow me to keep a roof over my family's head and food on the table. And while it may not be a Bentley in the garage, I mean, well, actually, I don't have a garage, so not even not even a, a Bentley to put into it. It's uh, It enables me to do what I do, whatever that is. Sometimes I'll, I'll admit it when people ask me, what do you do? Um, I'm not sure what to tell them. I'm a content creator, but, you know, my content has a very decided slant towards uh, personal freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, free markets, liberty, stuff that makes life meaningful. Actually, I, I think it's probably some of the most meaningful uh, principles that uh, that the world has yet uh, discovered. But those are the people who make it happen. My sponsors, lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com. Ironsight Brewing Company, ironsightbc.com, as well as quiltandso.com. So, were you affected by the big cellular outage that took place on Thursday? I mean, I for, for whatever reason, we've not had the best of luck with cellular companies uh, throughout the years, but I did not notice any uh, downtime as far as, you know, the, the service dropping off or anything like that. So somehow it may have missed me, but it did not miss a ton of people. And I guess the the remarkable thing about this outage, number one, it affected way more than AT&T customers. I did see a pretty funny headline about AT&T customers unaware that there was a disruption of service because they're used to not having any service. Ooh, that one stung. But numerous systems, so I don't even think it was necessarily just cellular systems, were affected. And I'm talking dozens and dozens of companies. That's a little bit eerie. And of course, this lends to speculation and people, well, you know, it's the Russians. The Russians are trying to hack us. We better bomb them right. And that's the neocons that are saying that. And I know a lot of people are looking for answers. And, and the first thing I must tell you, I don't know. I really don't. However, would it surprise you to know that there were not uh, not two but three X-class solar flares that have occurred just within the last 24 hours or so, at least if when, when, I'm, when I'm recording this. Two of those massive solar flares, again, these are X-class, these are some of the biggest ones, and they were longer-lasting flares, took place almost immediately before that widespread disruption. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I know there are those who'd pick that apart. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know... Correlation doesn't equal causation. I get that. At the same time, you probably heard me mention Ben from uh, Suspicious Observers or Space Weather News. I think the website is spaceweathernews.com. The YouTube channel is Suspicious Observers, but this is the guy. He is a scientist, by the way, and a very good one. He watches the sun. He, he checks into everything involved in the heliosphere, you know, daily. 
And as a scientist, he has access to a lot of the tools that, that other scientists do as well, including NASA satellites and so forth, that can tell you in this many angstroms, here's what we see happening on the surface of the sun, and, you know, readings of electromagnetic, uh, you know, energy and so forth. So I'm not trying to confuse the issue, but I'm going to tell you, Ben's explanation sure makes a whole lot more sense than what everybody else has been saying. If it was hacking, how did it hit so many different companies at once, so many different systems at once? I'm not saying it's, you know, entirely impossible. I'm just saying, given what happens when the sun lets loose, it's, it's an explanation that I think is probably worth looking at. Now, I will tell you this, before, before you go and subscribe to Suspicious Observers, one of the things that you will learn on that channel, and he has a couple of videos that will give you all the background on this, is that the Earth has... A, uh, a cycle in which the uh, the magnetic poles flip. And it's a roughly 12,000 years. Every 12,000 years, those uh, those poles flip. There's massive weather change. Huh, what? Did I just say there's climate change? Yes. <laughs> and it's not caused by man. It's caused by the sun. And it's a magnetic field, an electromagnetic field in correlation with the Earth and every other planet in the solar system. Okay, I'm getting pretty far out in the weeds here. Suspicious Observers on YouTube. Check them out. Spaceweathernews.com, I believe, is, is his website. Look, Ben's intelligent. He's entertaining. But mostly, he really has a very interesting take on this. And, and I'm, I'm going to give you the, the spoiler ahead of time, just so it doesn't take you by surprise. We are in the middle of a climate shift that happens naturally, not just on this planet, but on every planet within the solar system. And it involves forces and scientific concepts that I, I can't even begin to explain to you. But the Earth's historical record, they have names for these events. Well, there's this Heinrich event that took place, and then there was this event and that. The Carrington event, right? Big coronal mass ejection of, of uh, plasma and particulates and, and energy coming at us from the sun. Now, here's the good news. Those big solar flares, they were very sustained, but they did not result in... Uh, in the uh, CMEs that are usually associated with them. By the way, if you, I'm, I'm off. I'm off on a tangent here, but I want to finish this out. The Carrington event happened back in the 1860s. Think where technology was then. Telegraph lines, right? I mean, there was not a lot of electronic stuff, but the telegraph lines that was a real thing, and that was how people communicated. When the sun did its coronal mass ejection that was pointed directly at the Earth, and all that incoming energy struck the Earth's magnetic shield or magnetic field, which protects us actually from, you know, the, the sun's energy and, and magnetism and so forth. It fried the telegraph lines. I mean, it was a big deal. People knew about it. It was like, why, why aren't these things working? It's because there was this basically almost like a big EMP that, that came through. Now, fast forward to today. We have something a little more complicated than, uh, you know, telegraph lines. I think of everything that relies on all of that information, whether it be cellular, whether it be internet, or even just the electrical grid. Okay, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to stop right there. I'll let you pick it up and walk with it. If you want, if not, you can just, well, I don't know, that looks kind of scary. That's okay. You don't have to run anywhere with it, but I'm just saying, if something like that was headed your way, would you want to know? Would you want to be prepared? We're not talking extinction event, but probably close to it for, for a lot of people. Because, you know, what happened? The woolly mammoths, they were here one minute, then gone the next? Hmm, gee, I don't know. Almost like something big took place. 
Polar flip? Huh? Go see what you can find out. Okay. Well, let's get back to some other topics that I believe may be worth your time. Um, oh, this is one I, I was hoping to share with you. Uh, this is... I hear a lot of talk about white privilege. In fact, that one of the big things that's been dominating uh, the the conversations, and, and yes, I listened in, and then I bought in and was like, okay, I want to know more. This Gemini AI that uh, that Google had, had started out with, did you hear what was happening when people would ask it? Well, show me this, show me, or um, how does it, how do you put it? There's a way to do the prompt. If you just tell it, show me George Washington, it'll show you George Washington. But if you say, create an image of, you know, the founding of founding era gentlemen having a meeting. Every single one of the photos would come up with anything but white people. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it didn't even exist, you know. And it was AI, and we come to find out, yes, the AI programmer who created that particular program apparently is, is really, really woke, talking about white privileges everywhere. And so AI was then harnessed to... Uh, to basically erase, you know, this is like the, this is the memory hole from 1984. Now I did have to laugh. The Babylon Bee, as always, were, they were on target. And what did they do? Um, oh, Gemini AI. When asked, uh, Ge- Gemini AI, unable to create image of black man, when, when asked to create an image of uh, Clarence Thomas, instead it makes a white Supreme Court justice. It was like, oh, <laughs> uh, well. It just cracks me up that uh, history is being rewritten. At least, you know, it's, they're trying to rewrite it through the AI. But I guess this is not the only program that's like that. Now, there, there are some AI programs, and I'm not an expert on this by any stretch, but some of them are pretty straightforward. A lot of it depends on the quality of the prompts that you give it. And those who give really good, concise prompts can get some amazing results. But what an interesting future when you start to consider that, yes, ideology can even start to infiltrate into the cold, impersonal world of the computer. They may be just ones and zeros that are driving, you know, that uh, that program. But now those ones and zeros apparently come in either red or blue. Or maybe there's some other configuration. But, it's you know, if, if there was anything that could be said, I think it was James Howard Kunstler who talked about the defining characteristic of the illness that has infected, you know, every nation in our world at this time. It's the, It's the... It's the pandemic of untruth. Having to pretend this, having to pretend that, but staying disconnected from reality. I mean, it sounds like a great way if you want to control people, that's probably a good way to do it, but it also sounds like a good way to find yourself in a lot of trouble. When we come back, we're going to talk about white privilege, real white privilege, kind of. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sorry, I got totally off on tangents, but that was some pretty interesting stuff that was going on earlier this week, and I just, I had to touch on it in the last segment. Let's talk about white privilege. You've heard that phrase, I hear it too. And the next time you hear it, you might want to actually think about the story of Giles Hopkins. I picked this up off intellectualtakeout.org. There's another great website to bookmark and to, to check out on a regular basis. Man, they have some great thought-provoking writers. C.S. Body writes about white privilege, the story of one boy, and this was fascinating. Here's a narrative about one little boy based on a true story. 
And C.S. Body says, I'm sharing it as an example of the life of a white person who was not privileged. Now, this is pertinent to, well, you know, it's always been that way. And, you know, they founded the whole country and that whole system was founded on it. Let's go back to the very founding of this country. And I mean, not just 1776. Let's go back to the settlement of Jamestown, right? When people really started to come here from Europe in great numbers. So Giles lived in England in 1617. We're talking a nine-year-old boy. His mother, Mary, and his sister, Elizabeth, had died of the sickness, right? The plague. His father had sailed away to Jamestown, Virginia, nearly seven years earlier. So he was only two when his dad left. People said that his father must have been dead because apparently his father's ship had met a hurricane near Bermuda. Well, Giles still had one sister. Her name was Constance. He called her Connie. The two of them were made wards of the church, and they went to an orphanage until their Uncle William claimed them and took them into his home. But in that busy household, no one even noticed them. Now, Giles' dog had died too. It was a terrier that caught rats. Are you seeing the connection here? Unfortunately, the rats, which had caused his mother's and sister's sickness, caused the dog to get sick and die. That's, that's what Giles thought. Now, he tried to live with his losses as much as he could as a young boy. He was very angry and took his anger out on the rats, throwing stones at them when he could. Giles wondered if he would have a chance to grow up and be a man at all. He wondered if God even knew or care, knew that he was there or cared about him at all. But he continued to say his prayers, which tied him to his mother somehow. Now, one miraculous day, a maid heard Giles' complaints as he spoke in anger to God. She told Giles that she was sure he would live a long and interesting life, and later that day, she came and told Giles and Constance to brace for some news. Their father, Stephen, had returned from England, or returned to England, rather. He was coming for them. Now, that was news that was almost too good to believe. In fact, Giles didn't believe it till he saw his father coming up the lane with a trunk on his back. Now, the reunion was bittersweet. Stephen and his children fell upon each other. They did not want to let go. He apologized to them for being away when their mother and sister had died. He expressed grief with, the, with words the children could not access themselves and expressed hope for a reunion with them in heaven. And he asked for forgiveness from Giles and Constance. Now, Giles wanted to forgive his father, but his anger wouldn't let him at first. And so he was asking questions like, why did you go so far away? How could you leave us like that? Stephen explained that he was trying to support the family by indenturing himself. In fact, he felt he had to do so with the way things were in England. No one could get ahead or own land, and it was impossible to make a living under the feudal system. Well, that explanation was enough for the moment, and Giles fell against his father, crying. He wanted to stay there forever. He confided that he knew the rats had somehow killed his mother and sister. And he asked, can we buy another dog to kill the rats? Stephen patted Giles on the back and said he had the connection with the rats that the connection with the rats was correct. His mother and sister had died in the spring when the fleas on the rats were active again. Now here Giles realized, so it was the fleas, not the rats, that brought the deadly sickness. And he was grateful for that one piece of information and glad that his father was back. So Stephen took his children away away to London from his brother William's house. So he and the children were a family again, but they only found a room behind a pub in which to live at first. And then later they moved into a small house at the edge of London. Now, to Giles, London was exciting, but it was also terrible. It smelled awful. There were crooks and thieves everywhere. And Giles learned about these things by listening as he walked the streets to deliver items for merchants. That was the job he got. He got into fights over what other boys said about his father, that he'd mutinied at at, uh, Bermuda. Funny, though, his sister was always there to show up to get him out of trouble with the constables. Father told Giles that spies in London, there were spies in London, rather, to find people who did not support the king's version of Christianity. 
And those people were taken away, imprisoned, or beheaded, and burned at the stake. or behe- And beheaded or burned at the stake. So he, so he told Giles, don't speak of religion to anyone. Well, one night, Giles heard father and a baker named Elizabeth, whom all the family had taken a shine to, talking at the table by candlelight. And they discussed sailing to America together, taking Connie and Giles with them. The baker said, I'm willing. Here I know what I'll be doing every day of my life for the rest of my life. I'm willing to risk even my life for something more. I will willingly go with you, Stephen. Shortly after that, Stephen and Elizabeth were married. Months later, they had a daughter whom they named Damaris. Now, Giles wasn't so sure he wanted to leave England. He wanted to stay in London and go to school. He wanted to build a life for himself there. He even contemplated running away so he could stay in England. But then something happened when he was delivering produce for a merchant. A woman opened her window on the upper floor of a building and poured out the contents of a chamber pot into the street. Yeah. And urine fell all over Giles and all over the produce. Now, he went back to the merchant and reported on what happened. The merchant cuffed his ear and told him to go and take it on to the manor house. Giles set the produce down on the ground right there and decided he would rather leave London and sail across the ocean with Father Elizabeth, Damaris, and Constance for a better life. He reasoned Father could teach him to read and write. Giles thought he could also learn to read charts aboard ship and make some maps himself. Well, it wasn't long before the Hopkins family, carrying baby Damaris in arms and Elizabeth pregnant again, went to a pier to get on a small ship to take them to the Mayflower. They carried only only minimal supplies, tools, and and clothing with them. The journey would be hard, and the process of building a new life in a new land would be even harder. There would be much more death and uncertainty to endure, but they would do it. So Giles would become a highway surveyor in the colonies. He had his life, a very interesting life, and he married and had many children. And that's the point, isn't it? Life is hard for all kinds of people. We owe the brave ones who opened the door for us with a way of uh, with a debt of gratitude rather. They did not have white privilege, but they did have the pioneer spirit, faith and courage. Now this isn't just I share this with you again. This is from CS Body writing on American privilege, I'm sorry, American privilege. Hello Freud, americanthinker.com. The reason I share this though is because I think it's so easy for us to forget when we're disconnected from the people who came before us. And I don't just mean, you know, in knowledge of historical facts, right? If you can recite a bunch of names and dates, that's great. And I want you on my side when we play Trivial Pursuit. Really, I do. But when you actually have a connection to the people, in other words, like family, the stories of the people, the decisions that they made and so forth, you start to appreciate what they were willing to do, knowing that the greatest benefits of their work, their hard labor, weren't going to be enjoyed by them. They were going to be enjoyed by their children, or or perhaps their children's children, or maybe even several more generations down the line. I guess the the best way to put this, uh, the best analogy that I've heard, is they were planting trees in whose shade they would never sit. But they did it. So here's my advice for what it's worth. And you paid nothing for it. So here it is, though. The next time you hear people going on about white privilege, instead of your, you know, hair standing up and, you know, getting ready for fight, don't, don't, uh, don't take it personal. Just remember that uh, the people who came before us sacrificed deeply so that we could benefit. And if, if we, if we, can't repay that debt of gratitude, you know, the thing we can do is be willing to be the kind of people 
who'd be willing to endure hard things and do hard things and to, to achieve the impossible for the sake of people who come after us. I honestly believe, I mentioned in the last segment, you know, that, that great sickness that just has the, the whole mankind, civilization everywhere, pretty much every developed world and every developed nation in the world, we're all just wandering around in a big state of untruth and uncertainty. Maybe it shouldn't be that way. But if you're going to be certain on something, you need to know who came before you. How did we get here? The best way I know to do this is you read old books. You read personal journals and letters written by people from the actual time that you're trying to study. That's how you get in their heads to figure out what they were thinking. Are they going to be right all the time about everything? No. But then again, neither are you and neither am I. So let's be humble enough to admit if they have blind spots, then uh, we probably do as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm always torn between, you know, how much of this information that I'm giving you is going to give you hope or give you some kind of, you know, inspiration to stand firm, be a source of light, you know, a beacon of courage in a, in a stormy sea. And I really do hope for that kind of stuff, but I know a lot of the stories that I'm sharing with you sometimes just really point out the gravity of what is in front of us. And I'm like anybody else. I don't like to see it either. I don't like to sit and wallow in it either, but I want to at least be aware. Okay, so here's what's happening. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So the, the big cellular outage, it doesn't send me into a state of panic, but it does make me think, okay, let's say that the system suddenly, inexplicably, for some reason, all shut down or are shut down, maybe even to protect them from whatever, you know, something that's going on that someone's worried, you know, might do long-term damage or even destroy them. Oh, we better shut them down just to be safe. What are you going to do when your money is all electronic? And I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, plant seeds of fear here. I'm just saying, what are you going to do? How do you get your information on the world, right? This is, we're all looking at screens. What's going on? We're all addicted to screens. And even then, it's not that many people who seem that concerned with what's going on. I'm going to share with you a commentary from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. It's a digital coup d'etat. Coup d'etat. There we go. I don't speak French, as you may have noticed. Jeffrey Tucker says, There was a time, and what seemed to be unfolding was a huge intellectual error for the history books. A new virus had come along, and everyone was freaking out and smashing all normal social functioning. Now, the excuse turns out to be just the cover story, but still, it bears examination. Even though plenty of outside commentators said that the pathogen should be handled in the normal way, with known treatment and calm, while those most susceptible stayed cautious until endemicity. Some people on the inside fell prey to a great fallacy. They had come to believe computer models over known realities. They thought that you could separate everyone, drive down infections, and then the virus would die out. Now, this was never a plausible scenario, as anyone who knew something about the history of pandemics would report. All known experience stood against this cockamamie scheme. The science was very clear and widely available. Lockdowns do not work. Physical interventions in general achieve nothing. But hey, they said it was an experiment born of new thinking. They would give it a whirl. And when it became clear that the lockdowners had gained sway over policy, many of us thought, truly, how long can this really last? A week? Maybe two? And then we would be done. But then something strange happened. 
The money began to flow and flow, and the states thought, well, that was awesome, so they kept it up. The money printers got to work, and general chaos broke out, social, cultural, educational, economic, and political. And Jeffrey Tucker says it happened so fast. The months rolled on with no break in the narrative. It became crazy after a time. There were so few critics. We didn't know it, but they were being silenced by a new machinery that had already been constructed for this purpose. Among that, which was censored, was the criticism of the inoculation potion that was being rolled out and which would eventually be forced on populations all over the world. They said it was 95% effective, but wasn't clear on what that could mean. No coronavirus had ever been controlled by any vaccination. How could this be true? Jeffrey Tucker says it wasn't true. Nor did the shot stop the spread. Many people said this at the time, but we couldn't hear them. Their voices were muffled or silenced. The social media companies had already been taken over by government-connected interests working on behalf of intelligence agencies. We had believed that these tools were designed to increase our connections with others and enable free speech. Now they were being used to broadcast a preset regime narrative. Strange industrial shifts took place. Gas cars were deprecated in favor of a new experiment in electric vehicles. Thanks to intense consumer demand caused by shortages owing to supply chain breakages. Digital learning platforms got a huge boost because physical classrooms were closed. Online ordering and doorstep delivery became the rage because people were told not to leave their homes and small businesses were forcibly closed. The pharma companies were riding high, of course, gradually acculturating the population to a subscription model. There were attempts to convert whole countries to a health passport system. Now, New York City tried this along with actual physical segregation of the entire city, with the vaccinated considered clean, while the unvaccinated were not allowed into restaurants, libraries, or theaters. The digital app didn't work, however, so that plan fell apart quickly. Now, all of this happened in less than one year. Okay, just as an aside, that kind of blows me away, but he's right. All of that mess that started in early 2020 has kind of just melded together to where there's two or three years where it's like, yeah, that, that, that really sucked. But what he just outlined, that all fell play into place in a year. Now, he says, coups of the past featured rebel armies from the hills storming the cities and joined by the military as they invaded the palace and the leader and his family fled in a carriage or helicopter, depending on the epic. But this was different. It was organized and planned by intelligence agencies within the structure of the global state, a great reset to reject the forms of the past and replace them all with a new dystopia. Now, initially, the people who said this was a great reset were derided as crazed conspiracy theorists. But then it turned out that the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, had written a book by the very title that you could buy from Amazon. It turns out to be H.G. Wells' The Open Conspiracy, updated for the 21st century technology. But it turns out there's much more than that. There was an angle to all of this that impacts the mechanisms we use for democratic control of societies. Buried in the flurry of bills shoved through in March of 2020 was a liberalization of balloting and voting that would never have been tolerated before. In the name of social distancing, mail-in ballots would become the norm along with the known irregularities they introduce. And Jeffrey Tucker says, implausibly, this too was part of the plan. Researching and realizing all of this in real time, he says, has been a bit much. It shattered the old ideological paradigms. The old theories no longer explain the world as it's unfolding. And it causes all of us to revisit our priors, at least those with minds adaptable enough to pay attention. But for vast swaths of the intellectual class, 
This is not possible. Jeffrey Tucker says, looking back, we should have known something was up at the outset. There were too many anomalies. Were the people in charge really so stupid as to believe that you can make a virus go away by making everyone stay home? It's absurd. You cannot control the microbial kingdom this way. And surely everyone with a modicum of intelligence knows this. And another clue, there was never an exit plan. What exactly was 14 days of frozen activity going to achieve? What was the benchmark of success? We were never told. Instead, the elites in media and government simply encouraged fear and then met that fear with ridiculous protocols like dowsing ourselves with sanitizer, masking while walking, and presuming every other person is a disease vector. This was psychological warfare. To what end and how ambitious are these hidden plans for us? Again, Jeffrey Tucker says only four years later, we're grasping the fullness of what was going down. So for those of us schooled in the persistent incompetence of government to get anything right, much less deploy a plan with anything like precision, elaborate conspiracy theories of plots and schemes always seem implausible. We just don't believe them. And that's why it took us so long to see the fullness of what was deployed in March of 2020. A scheme that combined a plethora of seemingly disparate governmental industrial ambitions, including rollout and subscription model or subscription platform model of pharma distribution. Have you had your boosters? Number two, mass censorship. Number three, election management slash rigging. Number four, universal basic income. Number five, industrial subsidies to digital platforms. Number six, mass population surveillance. You do remember there were... There were places that were tracking people by their cell phones to tell whether they violated COVID policy. Holy cow. How about uh, number seven, cartelization of industry. Number eight, shift in income distribution and entrenchment of administrative state power. Number nine, crushing of populist movements worldwide. January 6th, anyone? Number 10, the centralization of power, generally speaking. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says to top it off, all these efforts were global in scope. The whole model truly stretches the the bounds of plausibility, and yet all the evidence points to exactly the above. It just goes to show that even if you don't believe in conspiracies, conspiracies believe in you. Jeffrey Tucker says it was a digital age coup d'etat unlike anything humanity has ever experienced. And he asks, how long will it take us to process this reality? We seem to only be at the early stages of understanding, much less resisting. Man, I sure appreciate Jeffrey Tucker's voice. I've read his, his, his writings for, for quite a few years, long time, probably getting close to 25 years. I mean, I've, I have followed him and, uh, and have found him to have really great insights. But I'm telling you, this guy has been one of the best and most reliable and principled voices that I have found on the whole COVID affair. And one of the things I love about Jeffrey Tucker is it's not just a matter of, well, I did a quick Google search and found a couple articles that agreed with me and I'm here to tell you what they say. No. He did the research himself. He really dug in and he continues to dig in. Okay. It's not like, well, okay, I figured this out. I guess I can rest on my laurels. He's really good at putting two and two together. So if if you haven't yet subscribed to the Brownstone Institute, or at least you don't check them on a regular basis, you are missing a fantastic resource. And Jeffrey is just one of many voices. And as I think I mentioned before, a lot of the voices on there are people who were silenced and displaced and muzzled by the people trying to control the narrative and keep us from getting too close to the truth. Just want to let you know, there's a good resource out there. Maybe you just need someone to point it out. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's our final segment of the day, and got a couple great stories to share with you here. Actually, I've got three articles that I want to bring to your attention. I'm going to start with the article of the day simply because this is the longest, but again, this is one of those worthwhile sources. I probably should do this at the very beginning of the show. I'll save you all the time of, you know, having to get through the whole show to get to the to the dessert, but we'll just serve dessert first, I guess, starting in the future. But Brandon Smith has written an article for, uh, for his website, alt-market.us. And I'm not trying to invite you, hey, you know, Put on your tinfoil hat and let's go talk conspiracy theories. But if you believe that the globalists have been trying to consolidate power for whatever purposes for generations, that doesn't make you a conspiracy theorist. That makes you somebody who's actually paying attention. That's exactly what they've been doing. Now, there are some pretty interesting theories out there and some that get pretty far-fetched. But if you want to understand how the globalist cabal, whether it's the World Economic Forum or some of their subsidiaries, how those people operate and how they think, Brandon Smith says, well, the first thing you have to do is understand their psychopathic religion. Whoa, hey, we don't want to bring religion into this, but actually, no, you kind of do. I know not everybody believes in God, but, uh, but I'm going to put this in terms of um, metaphysical terms that hopefully don't make anybody feel too cornered, like they, they have to take a stand you know, one way or the other. But there has been a battle between darkness and light, good and evil, since long before we ever came on the scene. And I mean, mankind came on the scene. It's a spiritual battle, but it's the dynamic that drives every single conflict that we see before us today. And I tell you, Brandon does a marvelous job of helping you see the, the Luciferian ideology that directs those globalists and those elitists who think it's, it is our prerogative to control the world. They serve what they believe is the God of this world. It's not the God that, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian faith would, would say, or ethics would, would, would call, you know, the supreme being. Anyway, fantastic article. I hope you'll take the time to look at it. All right, let's talk about, uh, here's, here's a story that I just love, because it challenges the narrative. This is from John Miltimore, wonderful writer for the Foundation for Economic Education. I feel like I'm just highlighting some of my favorite writers today, and I am. His article on Argentina's president, Javier Mille is just fantastic. Now, I don't know if you heard this. In fact, I'm going to guess maybe you haven't heard this unless you're just a pretty dialed-in person and you know where to find some of these better information sources. But did you see the news? This just came out uh, just a couple of days ago. Javier Mille's Ministry of Economy, or actually his his, uh, government, has just announced that they have had their first budget surplus in nearly a dozen years. Why isn't American media talking about this? It's been, it's been over a decade. And this revelation that Argentina's done something the U.S. government hasn't done in more than two decades, which is to run a budget surplus, seems like that would be a newsworthy event. John Miltimore says, so why the silence? It's very interesting. I actually had a chance earlier this week. One of the other hats that I wear is uh, I help to host a program called Moving Forward with Young Voices. Now, you've heard some of those guests on this program from time to time. Actually, I'm going to be uh, talking with, uh, with another one, Connor uh, Vasile, coming up here uh, next week. But I had the chance to talk to a young man from Argentina. 
and and he's look he's not a fanboy of uh, of Millet, but he admits you know this guy is definitely doing things differently than they've been done for a long long time meaning he's he's shrunk government which is funny because you well yeah he's a fascist that's what he is he's an authoritarian pure and simple what authoritarian do you know of that cuts the size and cost of government in fact not only cuts it but actually brings up a, a budget surplus for the first time in many, many years. And he's been absolutely unapologetic to pointing out, you know, well, we need to get rid of these, you know, government departments. And he did. Huh? Correlation causation thing here? Did getting rid of those departments and, and unnecessary dead weight, did that actually what, somehow affect government spending? You know what the answer is. Absolutely. And, and yet the press doesn't want to talk about it. Why? Because, well, I guess if we knew about it, maybe, uh, maybe we would insist that our government do something about it. John Miltimore says, you know, to his surprise, I couldn't find a word about this in major U.S. media, not in the New York Times, the Associated Press, Washington Post, or Reuters. Although he says the New York Sun does seem to be the only exception. That's U.S. press. But he says, I had to find the story in the Australian media. And to be fair, the Agency France press also reported the story. Now, you could argue, well, these outlets just aren't very interested in Argentina's politics and economics, but that's not necessarily true. John says the Associated Press has covered Argentinian politics and melee extensively, including a recent piece reporting how the new president's policies were reducing anxiety and resignation in the populace. Wow. Could we try that? <laughs> Same goes for Reuters and other newspapers. So it's, it's a phenomenon known as media capture, and John actually includes a really handy video in his article, which is linked in my show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com, show notes for February 23rd, 2024, 2-23-24, bro. John says media capture can come in various forms and has numerous definitions, but the Center for International Media Assistance, or CIMA, defines it as a form of governance failure that occurs when the news media advance the commercial or political concerns of the state and or non-special interest groups, non-state special interest groups controlling the media industry instead of holding those groups accountable and reporting in the public interest. That sound familiar? <laughs> I tell that I look at most of the the um, legacy media, and that's exactly what I see. And look, I I used to be the guy who'd complain, yeah, you know, this is just sounds like more left wing crap from another left wing rag or what? You know, I don't know. We've all vented at one time or another. I would counsel, don't get your knickers in a twist over it, but be aware of it. And when you see it, just know, okay, this is not an information resource that I should uh, take at face value. I might learn something from them, but I've got to be responsible for vetting whatever I hear from them for myself. Because they've shown that uh, they want to serve the people in power or who they perceive to be in power. They want to advance their interests. They're not, they're not in it to keep you and me informed so that we can, you know, make uh, correct decisions or wise decisions when we go to cast our vote for who would represent us and how we want to be represented. Anyway, it's a fantastic article. Please take the time to take a look. Here is one from intellectualtakeout.org. And I, I actually saw the graphic that shows this, but have you heard about the canceled black Harvard professor who did a very in-depth study of police shootings and found that there is no racial bias, at least no measurable racial bias that can be gleaned from, from all of these police shootings. 
Kurt Malberg, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, look, unless you've lived under a rock for the last four years, you'll be very familiar with the claim, well, black Americans are disproportionately victims of police shootings compared to their white counterparts. But a nearly eight-year study challenging this narrative is enjoying renewed attention thanks to a recent high-profile interview of the study's author, African-American economist Roland Fryer, by journalist Barry Weiss of the Free Press. Now, let me tell you what makes this this, uh, remarkable. It was just a few short years ago that Barry Weiss was on the New York Times, I believe she was on their editorial board. She's, she's a sharp young lady, and she was, uh, she was one of them. And I think it was Joe Rogan who actually called her out a few years ago. He brought up the name Tulsi Gabbard, and uh, Bar- Barry Weiss was like, Ugh, she's a monster. And Joe pressed her on, not, you know, he wasn't being antagonistic, but he said, well, what do you mean by that? Give me an example. What do you mean she's a monster? And uh, it was it was pretty hard to watch, but Barry Weiss just sat there and kind of sputtered and flapped her arms for a couple minutes and then gave up. She she was saying the bumper sticker bumper sticker slogan or the the bullet point that you know everybody else was talking about, but really had nothing to back it up. Now I don't say that to humiliate her because I'm actually very impressed with what she did after that. That was kind of a wake up call for her, and Barry became more conscientious about digging in and taking ownership for her point of view. And guess what? Suddenly she found herself out of favor with the New York Times and suddenly she is, uh, she's actually much more of a source of truth than ever before. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a big fanboy, but, but I appreciate her work. Why? Because I know that she's at least making the effort to try to get the facts out there and let people decide for themselves. And I assume at some level she realized, okay, I was part of the problem. Look, have the grace to let people change if they realize they've made a mistake. Because every one of us needs that grace at some point. I'm willing to cut people quite a bit of slack. Usually because I'm aware that uh, somewhere, somehow, in ways that I'm not even fully aware of, people are cutting me major slack. And I really appreciate it. So... Having said that, there's there's another article for you to check out from today's show notes. Again, that's the BrianHydeShow.com. Show notes for February 23rd, 2024. Check out the story of this canceled black Harvard professor who found no racial bias in police shootings. How dare he challenge the narrative? It was so handy at defunding the police and, and getting people to do our bidding, say the founders of Black Lives Matter. Even if it's not based in reality, though, it, it certainly was a useful political tool. This is The Brian Hyde Show.